CC, growth journeys from emerging ecosystems to global markets. Now, when you look at every successful Israeli company has one or two development centers in Eastern Europe, and there is like a playbook of how you do it. How do you get the offices? How do you become the best employer of choice in the region? How do you overpay to make sure that you're getting the best employees? How do you bring them to Israel so that they get to, uh, they get to feel the company? And how do you basically, and this is one of the things where Israelis were really good at, rather than keeping them as an outsourced team, or as a team that does kind of, you know, the less exciting tasks, you're basically creating an office there, which is just another office. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them all the swag and the entrance, the sign on the door, the name of your company. Everybody's happy to talk about what the company's doing. And this has worked so well that this is now today part of the playbook of almost any fast-growing company in Israel. One of the most prolific technology investors in Israel, Gigi is a two-time CEO founder, board member, and a super angel before becoming the managing partner of NFX. He served as the CEO of 888 Holdings, one of the world's leading online gaming entertainment companies in the world, until mid-2011, when he turned his hobby of investing in startups into his full-time job. Gigi has either been a co-founder or board member at many giant companies such as Playtica, Kenshu, Plarium, SweetIM, iView, Good Job, and Superfly. In this episode, we've talked about topics such as running an investment firm as past operators, being a pro-founder investor, connecting Israel to Silicon Valley, and running multi-country offices between Israel and Eastern Europe. It was a very exciting and enlightening episode. Now let's get to it. Hey, Gigi, thanks for being here. Where are you right now? Hi, Rina. Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm in Israel. Thanks for being here. I kind of wanted to ask you some questions about NFX because NFX is known to have these amazing operating founders. You guys have three co-founders who can list past businesses like Trulia, Last Minute, Playtica, either all acquired or IPO'd at some point. And there is a massive operating career under your belts. And I'm sure that experience shapes your entire thesis around deal selection, deal making, and then portfolio support. Can you please tell us a little bit about your approach as a firm? Yes, of course. It is true that we have quite a bit of operational experience. I think it's like 10 companies and 10 billion in exits uh, or enterprise value. So, you know, clearly we were very lucky and my partners are amazing. I'm very lucky to have them as my partners. They're at the top of the Silicon Valley, and uh, and I and I learn a lot from them as well. And I think that as uh, as investors, operators, and it's kind of interesting because we didn't really start a, v- a VC immediately. We were all operators, and then from becoming operators, we started investing as angels in companies. Uh, and through that, we grew our portfolios, and then we kind of met and we thought that there's a way to do it better as a team, and that's how NFX was created. And the outcome is that we are very close to the founders in nature. To be clear, we're not mixing ourselves with the founders, meaning that we, we don't think that the company is ours or that because we gave somebody, we, we call the shots or we tell them what to do. We remember the other side of it. But we are available for the founders for everything they need. And I think that one of the things that sums it up is something that I used to say for years. And when people ask me, uh, do you want to be on the board? And I said, I don't care whether I'm on the board or not, but... I want to be the last meeting that the founder takes before going to the board because I'm on the founder's side. And this is how we work. 
I would want you as an investor and having coming from an operating side, it's very refreshing to hear that um, point of view. And, you know, you're being very humble saying that you were lucky and your partners were lucky. I think that was a little bit more than luck. So I know NFX started out as an accelerator for mostly network businesses. Um, these days, you guys have evolved into doing more classic style of seed investing, uh, especially early stage. I was kind of curious about the purpose of that evolution. Has the early stage game evolved so much that most high caliber teams don't need the hands-on experience anymore that the accelerator would provide? Or has the competition in accelerator space now a bit too high for the developed ecosystems like SF or Israel? That's a great question and um, and one that we don't get asked that much. Um, I think that we started as an accelerator because we wanted to be really close to great founders at a very, very early stage and working with them closely on basically forming their company and kind of crystallizing their idea and finding their product market fit. And uh, clearly there is, uh, in Silicon Valley, we have YC, which is an amazing organization and an amazing network. The beauty of accelerators is that they are a network effect business, meaning that the value of YC is not just the value of the brand and the specific help, it's the value of the network more than anything else. The network of investors, the network of uh, co-founders that you can consult with, the networks of companies that are graduates, alumni that you can sell your product into. And so we got in very late and we started building NFX and Accelerator, which worked really well. We got hundreds of applications or thousands for each class. We've had amazing founders that came to us. We chose deliberately the network effects focus, first of all, because that's what's interesting for us, but also because we wanted a differentiator. So it became very clear that if you're a network effects business, there is something unique in what we're doing. And then I think what, what we understood as we were doing it is that there's basically a reason why eventually good accelerators, and especially YC, become almost without, you know, not undermining them, of course, in any way, but they become factories of hundreds of companies per class. The reason is that this is a statistical game. When you basically choose companies uh, from, you know, thousands of companies that apply and you really don't do deep due diligence on anything, and they come in and many of them change their ideas as they go through the program, what really happens is that uh, you're basically building a statistical machine. And we figured out that's also why in many of these accelerators, you look at uh, the partners and they're not necessarily the same experience or investment experience as people that are partners in Sequoia or Benchmark, right? Because you need many partners. And when you need many partners, it's a different level. So we figured out that we basically have two directions we can go to. We can either create another factory, which we thought we could, but it meant for us personally to work not as close with the founders as we wanted and just manage a machine, which is a great machine and it's a great business. Don't, don't mistake me. YC is probably the best investment business model in the world. Or alternatively, we could do what we really love, which is be even more careful in our choice choose fewer companies and put even more effort and more money into them, which in other terms is called the seed fund. And then I think that what also happened is that we were seeing more and more that some of the top founders that were really good friends of ours and, and we knew uh, from before and we knew that they can raise money easily, they would come to us and say, look, guys, we really want to work with you, but how can I convince myself to do it when I can raise $4 million uh, from top investors. Being that we want to work with top people, we thought that uh, the industry basically changed. And if you're a top founder today, you really don't need to go to an accelerator. And so the combination of all of that led us to basically do, we did five accelerator classes that had some amazing companies. And then we shifted to being a seed fund focused on doing just best seed deals in Israel and Silicon Valley. 
Yeah, I completely hear that. They're two di- very different, distinct models. And it's not like one of them is better, or the other one's worse. It's just what suits your skill set and your preferences more. And uh, I even like seeing how the accelerator model by somebody like YC is even evolving and changing. I completely understand the shift. Um, so kind of moving back to your geographic presence, you guys operate both in Israel and California, notoriously the most two developed ecosystems for innovation and startup building in the world. And they're both very competitive in different ways. And But like one common thing is there's no shortage of capital for good founders on either location. Yep. For example, in the case of Israeli companies, is there an urgency for these founders in Israel to tap into networks or platforms that can accelerate their ties to the North American market? So meaning multi-country firms like yours are at an advantage for deal access because of your presence in the U.S. That's hitting the nail uh, exactly on the head. I think that at the end of the day, uh, good founders would raise money in Israel in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. It's really not a problem. We have probably the highest VC allocation per capita in the world, probably. Probably more than Silicon Valley when you look at it per capita. And the meaning is that everybody good ends up raising their initial rounds. And so the question then becomes, what can you offer as an investor that's going to, on one end, increase your chances of winning the deals, but also increase your performance by uh, getting the companies to be better. And when I was an angel, and I've invested in like 100 companies, so you know I have a bit of experience on that, what, what I could see is that one of the main things that I was bringing to the table was the fact that I was fairly networked in Silicon Valley. When somebody wanted to deal with one of the large platforms, Facebook or Google or somebody, and they needed a contact person, or if somebody wanted to partner with some with the company, or even just get to speak to people with very specific experience in something, uh, I usually had a very good network for an Israeli, uh, while most Israeli investors didn't have that. And so when I thought about forming something, the, one of the reasons that from the get-go uh, I chose to partner with people in Silicon Valley is that in the back of my mind, it always meant that I will have another competitive advantage in the Israeli market. And when I look at it today, you know, our companies in Israel, when they need to speak with somebody in whatever company you can think about or get advice about the person that, uh, you know, a specific campaign a few years ago in Dropbox and they want to know whether it worked or not. You know, we today, because of James and Pete's network, we basically get to anywhere. And that is a huge advantage for the companies in Silicon Valley, but even more so because it's so unique in Israel for the companies in Israel. Sure. And so, and so, th- so this is a very unique value proposition that existed in Israel for kind of A and later stages because you have in Israel, you know, you've had Sequoia in Israel, you've had you have Lightspeed in Israel. Um, so there are a bunch of funds that are international. You clearly have Bessemer, who is one of the best, you know, Adam's one of the best investors in the world that is in Israel. And so there are, at the A and onwards, you get funds that are American that can give you that. But at the seed level, there's just nobody. Yeah, yeah, that's the advantage. I mean, I think you guys are so uniquely positioned because the co-founders, the GPs are all very similar, but also very different and synergistic and like how you complement each other. So that's definitely a huge advantage. I mean, I'm sure you're always asked about Israel and why it is so great and the startup nation, as many call it. You know, a lot of reasons have been cited previously, maybe the cultural ties giving rise to incredible levels of perseverance and grit. Um, Sometimes the army forces and the specialization within that has been mentioned or the abundance of capital, which is probably all true. 
But something I've noticed from my operating days was that I remember being at Peak Games and I had like this aha moment. I thought I was so smart because I was thinking, why don't we build a development office in Ukraine where there's like a lot of capital, nobody's there, nobody even talks about it. So I was thinking I was so smart. We got on a plane to go to Kiev. And then I remember like everybody on that plane was speaking Hebrew. I guess like Israel has been there before (laughs) us, like way before. So what do you think, like what makes Israeli teams so good at managing tech teams elsewhere, given that they might have no direct natural, cultural, or ethnic ties there. Like we're not talking about like a Turkish expat, like building a business in Silicon Valley, having like a Turkish development office. This is like Israeli teams having back offices and tech teams and development offices, like literally anywhere where there's opportunity. How are, how are you guys so good at this? It's an interesting observation. And I think that this is like many things. It's very easy to look at it uh, in retrospect and say we were very smart, but in reality, we're very uh, lucky. And as you probably know, when Russia opened and allowed Jewish immigration out of Russia, uh, we basically had, or the former uh, Soviet Union, we had close to a million people that moved from Russia um, and the former Soviet Union into Israel. Many of them were people with engineering degrees or engineering backgrounds, and they became, more than anything else, uh, the cornerstone of the modern Israeli tech community in many ways. You know, up till today, uh, you know, we always kind of joke and say that in every successful company, you can see a core of people that you can trace back to that uh, immigration wave from Russia. These people, many of them still speak Russian and they have a clear cultural affinity to the Russian people. And so what happened is that as Israel was starting to look where to expand to, while the Americans, if you needed to take an offshore center, you would go to India because that was like the go-to place or the Philippines or somewhere. Israelis very quickly realized that it's the same time zone, very high technical skills, And then that every company almost had somebody that could speak the language and could communicate and could understand the culture. And so somewhere, I think, through the early 2000s, Israeli companies started looking at this and seeing this huge opportunity of extending teams at what was then, now it's not not as cheap, but what was then one-tenth the cost for people that are on the same time zone and speak a language that some of your employees speak as well. And then that was the kind of the opportunistic moment. And then on top of it, very quickly, we started building methodologies. And so right now, when you look at every successful Israeli company has one or two development centers in Eastern Europe, and there is like a playbook of how you do it. How do you get the offices? How do you become the best employer of choice in the region? How do you overpay to make sure that you're getting the best employees? How do you bring them to Israel so that they get to uh, they get to feel the company? And how do you basically, and this is one of the things where Israelis were really good at, rather than keeping them as an outsourced team or as a team that does kind of, you know, the less exciting tasks, you're basically creating an office there, which is just another office. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them all the swag and the entrance, the sign on the door, the name of your company. Everybody's happy to talk about what the company's doing. And this has worked so well that this is now today part of the playbook of almost any fast-growing company in Israel. I've noticed. Imagine my disappointment when I realized I was a little bit too late to the party, you know, years back. So, I mean, I think as an early stage investor, 
it's very natural for you guys to be very involved in the beginning, say with things like recruiting or business development or raising downstream capital, like all the things you've mentioned up until now. But I guess like the hope is that at some point, you know, the companies scale enough, grow enough that they kind of graduate. And now they need to build a similar rapport with like later stage investors at like series A and B and beyond. But I think until then, a lot of companies need handholding and meetings and, um, you know, require your time. And I know that NFX is a rather small team. How do you guys manage that portfolio relationship with a small team? Uh, so we're, we're actually a fairly large team because we have uh, our own tech team and marketing team in-house. You know, but the companies, the founders want to work with us, with the partners and with the investment team. The first answer is that they always want more in many cases. And this is for us to manage. And this is a tough one. And, you know, one of the first things you learn as an investor is that you basically don't want to spend the most time on the company with the biggest problems. You probably want to invest your time on the company that's the most successful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the company that's most successful, many times you need to chase them rather than the other way around because they're successful. And so it's, it's this balancing game where you want to make sure that you spend the time on the right companies. And in this, I think that the reality is that you basically spend uh, probably a lot of your time on the most successful companies, a lot of your time on the companies that have the biggest issues, the biggest problems at this point, then you try to make sure that you still have enough time for the ones in the middle. That's the reality of it. It is a big challenge. And I think that I could probably double my time that I dedicate to meeting companies and still that wouldn't be enough. Um, but, but also I do believe that there is a, um, a diminishing marginal return on doing it, not because... I can't help them uh, more maybe, but because I've learned over the years that, and this is, I think maybe one of my biggest insights as an investor over the years and the biggest change is that you don't want to take the decisions for the founders. You want to learn how to think. And when I was CEO of a company, uh, the last company was CEO, which was 888 many years ago. And I used to be an investor at the same time and companies would come in and let's say they would meet me every two, three weeks. And uh, they would come in with a set of issues and I would uh, immediately tell them what I think should be done. And they would take notes and I would feel good and I, they would go out. And then they would come back two weeks later and they might have done what I told them on very specific stuff, but then they made mistakes in other places and I would get upset. And I would tell them again what to do and that just didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because even if you give them the best answers for everything they're asking when they're coming to you, uh, there's going to be 90% of the issues that are going to basically come up when you're not there. So at that point, I started understanding that I could think that I'm smart, that doesn't matter. And maybe I could be a great CEO for that company. But if I'm not the CEO, then I need to teach the CEO, the founders, how to reach the right conclusion rather than tell them what to do. And so I stopped telling founders what are the answers I'm seeing. And I started trying to help them uh, understand how I'm thinking about it. Okay. It's great to hear that you've come to that realization, I think, for the benefit of the founders now who have the opportunity to try to figure it out themselves and try to build their own perspective around a certain problem instead of just hearing the solution from you. But it's very clear that all of this passion of tell them what to do or go in and fix it yourself comes from this operating experience. Do you miss it? Do you think about you know, building something or at least helping a team build something while also investing? Do you think that can coexist? So there isn't a week that uh, this thought doesn't come up. And uh, <laughs> and the point is that, 
we left between us that we're not really VCs, James, Pete, and me. We The first thing is that we usually make the mistake when we speak about the fund and we say the company. Not intentionally, but we're like, okay, so uh, we need to talk about the strategy of the company. And they're like, okay, we're not a company, we're a fund. But the second thing is that uh, we're all kind of oppressed entrepreneurs. <laughs> we're keeping ourselves close to entrepreneurship by doing this. And uh, what happened to me over the years is that every, even as an angel investor, every few years I would get an idea that I couldn't find anybody doing. And I would end up starting it up and either managing it myself for a while or just bringing a team and managing it. And I thought that when I get a fund, I'll stop doing that. And two years ago, I got a bug around edge computing and the ability to basically uh, use distributed infrastructure to create the largest edge cloud in the world without having to buy a single server. This was based at the time on the thoughts on the centralization at the blockchain era. Very quickly went away from blockchain, but the concept of edge computing that's based on other people's infrastructure. I ended up setting up a company uh, called Bridge and not finding anybody to run it at the beginning and then running it for 15 months while also being a VC and making my wife and kids very upset. But then we found a great CEO, one of the co-founders of Akamai that replaced me. The company raised a lot of money. It's doing really well. And I think that in the coming few years, that's likely to happen to me again. Wow. Okay. So the hope still survives for me too. I kind of wanted to hear that answer from you because I have similar urges myself. I guess like the one final question I want to ask about NFX is something that I really um, admire about um, because you guys create a lot of content and a lot of tech. You have really well-crafted, insightful newsletters and content you push out. I mean, it's very clear that a lot of work goes into that. And I, I've read somewhere that you also like throw a lot of events like CEO dinners, et cetera. Is this all in the name of creating your own network effects around investing and VC business? Or is it kind of like a byproduct of turning three operators into investors who literally can't stop building something? I think it's a mixture of everything. You know, when we started NFX as a seed fund, it was very clear to us that there are amazing seed funds out there. You know, we are not the first one and we're clearly uh, not the last one. And uh, and there's all these people that have been doing it for many years. And, you know, some people we admire, first round, others, there's some really great funds out there that have been doing that for many years. And the question then became, we do have our own personal networks and, you know, people know us and so on. But how do we become the fund of choice, the partner of choice to all the great founders? And it became clear that just by being a good investor, that's going to take many years. And so one of the things we did was we looked at our company and we strategized how can we get to be top of mind quickly while also keeping one of the other principles that we have in our fund, which is that we're really doing this not just for success and money, but we're doing this to really change entrepreneurship and the way great founders are funded and kind of make it in some areas, money culture overtook uh, entrepreneurial culture. And we don't necessarily like that. And we have this manifesto that we put out when we started the fund. And so we are really for founders. And, and being that that's the case, we're looking for ways to make our brand known and in a way that would also explain to everybody who we are. And at the same time, also help people that are not necessarily the people that we end up investing in. And so that strategy ended up with two outcomes. One of it is our, our content, 
which is, you know, it's, it helps us uh, stay top of mind, especially around network effects, which is our core thesis. And there's not a day passing. We don't get people writing us and saying, you know, I read this article and I really love it and it really relates to what we do and I would like you to have a look at it. And so that's one thing and we love that. The second thing is that is our software where we basically decided that other than the software we're building internally, we have our own internal CRM that has a lot of workflow, but also a lot of uh, algorithms in it that helps us uh, review you know thousands of deals very quickly. But on top of it, we're building software that is geared to the outside, to the founders. We have something called the company brief, which is like a doc sent dedicated for startups. It's the best way to send your company to somebody. And it's always going to be free and we never look at your data. And there's like, you know, tens of thousands of people that are using this to send their companies to investors. We have something called Signal, which is this tool that allows people to basically filter through investors and find out who's the best investor for them. And then basically if they connect their uh, their email, uh, we tell them what's the best route to get to these investors. And so, you know, these two things, our software and our content has helped us become top of mind and raise awareness to the NFX brand. Uh, which I think helped us, you know, the, the fund is only around for like three years as a fund. And still, uh, I think that, you know, lots of people know about it because of these two things. So it's a lot of hard work, but we're, uh, it's the kind of thing that we would do as operators. Yeah, definitely differentiates the firm. Uh, as you said, like uh, it's a new firm, but from, you know, makes it top of the pack. I agree. So at the end of each episode, we have three quick fire questions, which are, I promise, are harmless. If you're ready, let's get to it. Yeah, sure. Let's say you're not allowed to work for a year, Gigi, and you can live anywhere you want. Which city would that be? That probably changes a lot with COVID, meaning that if in the past I might have said that of Barcelona or something like that, <laughs> I think that now I would very quickly default to our, we have a beach and we, we don't own a beach, but we travel to a beach in Copangan in Thailand every year for 10 years now. This is going to be the first year in 10 years that we're not there. Mm-hmm. This beach is called uh, Ajuan, and it's basically uh, where our kids grew up. And for them, this is second home. And so I think that if I had to take a year, that would be a great place to take it. That sounds great. I want to go there too. Um, so if you had to rename NFX, uh, what would you name it? Wow. I, um, I don't think I have a good answer for that because, you know, we love the name and we had the domain and, you know, we think that network effects is a differentiator. But uh, the reality is that uh, it wasn't uh, a name that we were 100 percent sure about. It serves the purpose really well, but it's not everything we thought of. And and being that we are all kind of science fiction and fantasy geeks. It is very, very likely that if we didn't do NFX, it would be something from Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or or Dune. <laughs> I love those names too. I know it's like a three-letter domain. Who has that anymore? So a uh, great domain. So if you had to donate your whole net worth into one private company, what would that be? Yeah, I, I assume the point is one cause rather than one company. Uh, yeah. And I think that you know, for me at the end of the day, there are two things that I'm very busy with. One of them is very, very uh, specific, which is my efforts around the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You know, it's got a very local issue, but my very uh, strong desire to turn the Middle East into a better place. And so a lot of my efforts, I started when I was 14, dealing with this, are around that area. And we can talk at length about it, but this is clearly a cause that's close to me. I think the other thing that is clearly I also care a lot about sustainability and, and the planet that we're living to our kids. 
But if there's one thing that I would focus on, it would probably be on, on education. And I think that over the last 10 years, I refocused all my uh, non-for-profit work around one critical thing, which is the core understanding that through tech education, we can make the world a better place. And so that right now, you know, of all the tool sets that you can give the world and you can give uh, kids, then I think that better education around technology and making sure that the gaps don't open, that is probably the, the best thing we can do to stop inequality and make the world a better place. And so most of the non-for-profits I'm involved with today are ones that are taking specific parts of the population and trying to change reality using tech education. And, you know, in some places it's very high-end tech education. In other places, it's just making sure that people are uh, capable to use tech. But I think that if I've seen what tech education and what innovation that comes with it brings to the world, you know, this has been the heart of what made me successful. And I think that this is somewhere, if we are going to democratize knowledge more and bring uh, these abilities to more kids around the world, we will make the world a better place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's going to be fundamental in setting like future generations up for success. They have to be literate in technology now, like unlike maybe past generations. So all very aspirational. Gigi, this was great. Thank you so much for making time for us. I'm sure you inspired a lot of ideas and thoughts and everybody that's listening. Glad to have the, to be on it. Thank you so much for having me. Gigi is an inspirational investor that never let go of his entrepreneurial side, both in the way he invests, but also in the way he starts new businesses. Having that much lived experience and sometimes the mental support from your investor could be the game-changing factor in an entrepreneur's journey. In Gigi's case, not only he walked the walk and talked the talk, but he also had incredible connections to Silicon Valley, which helped his portfolio founders scale the companies parabolically. Here in the playbook, many Israeli teams have been setting up and managing offices in Eastern Europe was very inspiring and a good reminder that we have lots to learn from the Israeli startup ecosystem. Thanks for tuning in and hoping to catch you in later episodes. Cheers. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.